welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 135 for the first half of July 2015. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. John Spencer to talk about imaging with the New Horizons spacecraft. Dr. John Spencer is an institute scientist at the Southwest Research Institute. He has been involved with many spacecraft missions to other worlds, including the Voyager program in the 70s and 80s, the Galileo mission to Jupiter in the 1990s, and the ongoing Cassini mission at Saturn. Besides other research, John is currently the co-deputy of the Geology and Geophysics Investigation Team on the New Horizons spacecraft mission to Pluto, and he's in charge of finding potential hazards for the mission. So with that context, welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here. We're actually recording this on June 1st, but it's going to go out July 1st. So the media is going to be fairly saturated, I expect, at that point with New Horizons stuff. So I'm going to try to give people something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the details of really the nitty-gritty of, of these images and how you use these images to uh, tease out very low-signal things. So... With that said, I want to give sort of a broad background for people, and I want to ask you, how long have you been working with spacecraft imagery? Oh, I've been working on images from spacecraft back as far as the Voyager days. Um, a lot of my imaging has been kind of non-traditional in that I've been taking infrared spectra taken, for instance, from the Cassini mission or just a simpler instrument, infrared measurements from Galileo and making images out of them. Um, and so that involves more complicated techniques than we typically use for straightforward images taken from a camera that has a, has a detector that produces an array, uh, that produces an image uh, straight out of the box, as it were. Um, but uh, I was processing Voyager images of Io back in the 1980s, and I've been doing that in various forms ever since, plus a lot of uh, processing of images from ground-based telescopes or from the Hubble Space Telescope as well. And so, in broad terms, how do you actually process images from modern spacecraft as opposed to uh, something like Voyager or even Pioneer, which you weren't involved with, but the the classic, as you said, an array that produces uh, an image as opposed to all this extra kinds of processing that you might have to do with other kinds of detectors? Right. There are many levels of processing, uh, some of which are quite simple the, and some of which can get very complicated. Um, the simplest things you have to do are remove whatever signature of the camera itself has put onto the image. There's the stuff it's telling you about the scene that it's looking at and then the, the stuff that tells you about the camera itself, which you're not interested in and want to get rid of. So, for instance, each pixel in an image is... Uh, has a different sensitivity, and um, there, so you will get brightness variations in an image due to the different sensitivity of the different pixels, and you have to correct for that um, in uh, the uh, in the processing. And also, when a camera is looking at, even if it was looking at com a completely dark scene for a long period of time, it would be accumulating signal, um, which will depend on the exposure time, and so you have to subtract off that signal. Um, and sometimes you have very bright sky, particularly if you're looking at wavelengths where the sky 
if it's infrared light where the sky might be very bright from a telescope on Earth, for instance, you need to take an image of the object and then an image of the sky nearby and subtract those. Um, so there are all kinds of things like that that you would like to do to make sure you've, you're only seeing the scene you're looking at and not all this extraneous stuff. Along those lines, I was curious about cosmic rays. So I know that they, they tend to have different kinds of signals on the detector. Sometimes they're a simple one pixel. Sometimes there's a small streak. Sometimes there's a streak, but then almost a, a scattering of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, how do you deal with those? Because this has actually come up recently uh, with various anomalies in the Curiosity rover cameras on Mars, where what probably is a cosmic ray has been interpreted as, uh, for example, an alien searchlight. So mm-hmm. I was curious as to how you identify those and deal with them. Right. Uh, yeah, cosmic rays are kind of a pain, but we we do have techniques for dealing with them. Uh, the nice thing about them is that they don't reproduce from one image to the next. They're very random. Uh, so typically for the work we're doing on New Horizons, Whenever we take an image of a scene, we don't take just one image. We take a series of images. Um, for instance, for the hazard search, we might take six or nine or even 12 images of the same scene, uh, one right after the other. And the cosmic rays will produce random bright spots on each image. Uh, but they'll be in different places in every image. So when we combine those images together, uh, we have a piece of software that will automatically reject anything that only shows up in one of those images and we'll just average the signal from all the other images. And so with those kind of techniques, if you have enough images, and typically half a dozen is plenty, then you can really get rid of all those cosmic rays, and you're only left with the things that show up in every image and are therefore much more more likely to be real. Hmm. Okay, so with uh, you mentioned that New Horizons is doing these hazard kind of images, but... I wanted to ask first if the camera itself uh, that New Horizons has, specifically the LORI camera, that's the uh, long-range reconnaissance imager, I believe, does the LORI camera and the detector present any particularly unique challenges to image processing or uh, taking the images or anything that you didn't experience on, say, the Cassini ISS instrument? There are some things that are particular to the LORI camera. For instance, it doesn't have a shutter uh, normally, you will clear the CCD, you will open the shutter, light will fall on the CCD, record an image, you'll close the shutter, and then you'll read it out. Um, Laurie does not have a shutter, which means that it is continually uh, sensitive to light. And so when we take an image, we then have to shift the image down the array into a, a separate readout uh, set of electronics. Uh, in order to read the value in every pixel. This is a standard way that CCD uh, detectors work. Um, But as we're doing that, light is still falling on the detector. And so if we have a bright star, we will not only, or or Pluto itself, will not only have the image of Pluto, but will have a streak that extends vertically up and down from the object that's associated with the shifting of the image as we're reading reading it out. And... We, for normal images, we have routines that, because this is a very well-understood mathematical process, we can calculate exactly what that signal is and remove it from the images. For long exposure images that we're taking where Pluto is overexposed, uh, we have to do some additional steps to remove that streak. Um, in addition, uh, when the lorry camera gets really overexposed, um, 
you the electronics be, become saturated and we get streaks um, uh, that have that bleed away from the objects in just one direction. Um, and so typically for one of our long exposure images, you'll have Pluto and Charon somewhere in the image. You'll have a vertical streak extending up and down from them that's usually quite faint. And then we have this ugly streak in the perpendicular direction that just extends a short distance, but all information is completely destroyed in that region due to the saturation of the electronics. And so there's that little bit of each frame that we just can't use. Um, and we will deal with that by actually rotating the spacecraft 90 degrees and taking another image so that that ugly streak is going to be covering up a different part of the image. And by combining those two images, we can see pretty much everything that's close to Pluto. Um, so there are those idiosyncrasies. There are other more minor ones, but those are the most significant ones that we're having to deal with at the moment. And related to that, uh, this is a question from a listener. How big of an issue is the sensor noise? And if it is an issue, how do you actually deal with it? I mean, I would kind of assume that the LORI camera is uh, fairly advanced compared to other deep space cameras just because the the decade that it was made. But um, this is actually something that I don't know the answer to. So I was curious as to what the, what the actual noise properties were. Um, you know, I don't actually know quantitatively how it compares to other uh, typical space uh, CCDs. Um, but the noise is levels are, are pretty low. It's a very sensitive camera, but I couldn't give you actual numbers. Oh, it's better than the Cassini camera, or it's not quite as good as the Cassini camera, or whatever. But noise is, in some ways, the least of our problems, because noise is very well behaved. It's a random salt and pepper distribution of bright and dark pixels that covers the image uniformly, and the, as you add images together, you average out that noise, and it will never go away completely, uh, depending how many images you have, you can just reduce it to a certain level, and you know that below that level, you just won't be able to uh, believe anything that you see. Uh, but that's a pretty low level, and uh, for the kind of observations we're doing, these very long exposure images for the hazard program, for instance, we are more concerned with the things that are not as well-behaved, like these streaks and the cosmic rays and so on. Those just take a bit more work to deal with. Okay, so we've brought it up a couple times already, but uh, now the, the actual formal pre-planned question of... <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so the New Horizons mission itself, does it present any unique challenges for which good imagery is important? Um, perhaps besides hazards and then hazards. Uh, the New Horizons spacecraft, it's got special challenges because we're in a pretty low-light environment, as you might expect, uh, 32 AU from the sun. Uh, things are pretty dimly illuminated that far from the sun. And so we need fairly long exposures in order to get a, a well-exposed image. And as any photographer knows, the longer your exposure, the more chance you have of camera shake. And so um, sometimes our images are a little bit blurred because we the spacecraft couldn't hold perfectly still during that image. And we have various ways of dealing with this. Uh, we may take a bunch of short exposures and then add them together later. Or for a long exposure, we actually will try and hold the spacecraft steady by firing the thrusters once, more than once a second, actually, um, in order to be continually fine-tuning the spacecraft uh, position just so that it's holding as steady as it can. Um, 
but even with that, we'll get a little bit of blur. And so we, we have to deal with, with things like that. Something that makes New Horizons a little more difficult to hold steady compared to, say, Cassini is that uh, Cassini has these big flywheels. They're called reaction wheels that, by a gyroscopic effect, will hold the spacecraft very steady and um, can control its, po- its pointing and its tracking in a way that we cannot do on New Horizons, which is a much more lightweight spacecraft uh, that is... Um, controlling its orientation entirely by these little thrusters. So that's why for a long exposure image, we have to be continually firing these thrusters just to keep tweaking the uh, pointing to to hold us steady. A A particularly challenging thing that we're doing for New Horizons is taking images as we approach to look for any hazardous debris, any new moons or rings of dust around the Pluto system that might come close to the spacecraft trajectory when we fly through at our very high speed of 14 kilometers per second that might actually pose a threat to the spacecraft, might damage it um, if one of those particles hits us and something the size of a grain grain of sand could damage the spacecraft if it hits in just the wrong place. So we are taking a whole series of long exposure images as we approach Pluto where we're trying to look for really, really faint things next to what is now this huge, bright... Uh, searchlight of Pluto and the big, the big moon Charon. And so we're looking in the areas close to these very bright sources for things that might be a couple of hundred thousand times faint, fainter than Pluto and Charon. Um, and that's that's hard to do. We have to take very long exposure images to be sensitive to these very faint things. But with those very long exposure images, then Pluto and Charon are overexposed and we get glare from them and we get ghosts um, the same kind of lens flare that you you see if you point your camera at the sun mm-hmm. here on Earth. So all of these are things that we have to deal with and tease out and try and remove as best we can to look for these little tiny points of light that might represent something dangerous to the spacecraft. So you've mentioned the low light issue because Pluto is roughly 32 AU at the moment, which is means that it's only getting about... Uh, what, one one-thousandth as much light from the sun as we are at Earth. You've mentioned spacecraft movement. You've talked about hazard searches and how we're trying to find these really, really faint things next to what will be a very, very, and actually is, because you've already started the hazard searches, uh, a very, very bright light of Pluto and Charon. Along with the bright light of Pluto and Charon, as we go past Pluto, as spacecraft actually goes beyond Pluto and farther from the sun, I know that you're going to be actually looking back at Pluto and trying to see the the dark side, basically, uh, or the night side, because there is no permanently dark side, but the night side of it from reflected light from Charon, uh, almost like we see, uh, what's it called? I think Earthshine on the moon uh, from Earth. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that, because that seems like, I mean, you're looking for light reflected onto Pluto off of Charon when the sunlight is only one one thousandth as bright as it is at Earth. I mean, that sounds like you're going to need an incredibly long exposure. Uh, That's right. Um, We're not sure if this will even work. Um, It is our only chance to see what's happening at night on Pluto and also what is happening on the winter pole because Pluto's northern pole is tilted towards the sun, um, has been for a couple of decades, and so the southern pole is has been in permanent darkness for that period of time, and it's quite possible that the atmosphere is condensing out in those regions, is producing 
new fresh frost in those very cold winter regions, or even you might get um, a little bit of condensation just in the course of a Pluto night, which lasts three Earth days. Hmm. Um, so we really want to look at those dark regions. And um, yeah, Sharon light is extremely feeble. Um, and so we're going to be playing similar games to the games we're playing for the hazard uh, process where we will take many, many images and we will add them all together and just see if we can tease anything out of that region. Also, to make that more complicated is we'll be looking not only on this incredibly dimly lit night side of Pluto, but we're looking back into the glare of the sun, which Oy. we don't have to contend with on approach. We're, we're coming from the direction of the sun, so as we look back at Pluto after the flyby, we're only about 15 degrees from where the sun is in the sky. And it's a really good camera for excluding that sunlight from the image and allowing us to see something that close to the sun. But we will have quite a lot of, of solar glare in the images as well that we're going to have to um, subtract out and uh, just do the best we can to remove that. We've taken test images on, uh, on during the cruise to Pluto where we have looked at that uh, in that same distance away from the sun with the same kind of orientations that we'll use at Pluto. So we have some idea what to expect, but this is one of these things. It's the only chance we'll ever get to do anything like this, look for frost on the night side of Pluto. So we will uh, just give it our best shot and we'll see whether it works or not. Okay, well, uh, good luck with that because that sounds like an incredibly difficult process to try to tease out that signal and uh, I'm kind of glad that I don't have to be part of that effort. <laughs> but these are interesting puzzles. You, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's incredibly interesting, but it sounds really, really hard, and you're going to be very much dealing with very, very low signal relative to the noise. Yes. Um, yeah, I think we're actually going to have fun trying trying that. But we may just decide, well, we tried this, and we, it's just not possible to get that information out of the images. It's a, a small part of what we came to Pluto to do and whether or not we can do that little task, though a lot of other things we know we'll be able to do really well that are much easier and uh, will not take such heroic efforts. And actually, I'm curious about that in the sense that you're going to be working on this, but you also have other people working on this, and at least with the hazards, you have a whole team of people who, as I understand it, are actually processing every image independently and searching for hazards themselves uh, in order to get this kind of redundancy. And I'm curious as to how that works in terms of reaching a consensus as to whether or not an object is really there, or in the case of the, the Charon shine on Pluto, whether you're really seeing frost on the winter pole or, or a big basin or not. Uh, are you going to have that kind of redundancy and independent analysis to try to to see if you agree at all? Oh, we will, yes. It's it's really a useful thing to have when you're looking at things right at the limit of what you can believe. Um, it's always the question. You see something interesting in the data, um, and your first question is always, is this real? Sometimes it's really, really obvious that it's real, and oftentimes it's not. You've got things that you really have to puzzle over and apply different tests, so... Um, indeed, one of the tests we will have is to have different people analyze the data in different ways and see if they get the same result. We also 
we'll take the data in different ways and see if we get the same result. So, for instance, when we're um, looking at these hazard images and we're looking for faint new moons, which until we detect them are going to be below the threshold of detect of of the capability of seeing them. So when we first see them, they'll be right at that threshold as we get closer. And we'll have to work really hard to be, convince ourselves that if we see some little blip, whether it's real or not. So we'll look at it. Uh, we'll see if it is moving around Pluto on a sensible orbit or if it just jumps randomly around. It's probably not real. We'll take images with two different, a couple of different orientations. And if it's in the same place in the image in the two orientations, we'll know it's probably not some uh, internal reflection in the camera or something like that. And yeah, just having the different teams looking at it with their own independent techniques will give you confidence that it's not something introduced spuriously by somebody's particular imaging technique. So we always have those kind of discussions and that kind of check uh, before we announce anything real. We always have to be very careful, particularly when the success of the mission is at, at stake. Yeah, well, and so I'll also remind listeners that uh, we are recording this a month before it's going out, so it is actually entirely possible that as you're listening to this, we have discovered another moon, uh, and it's it's out there in press releases. So uh, I just want to make sure that people understand that we are recording this June 1st. Uh, it's going out July 1st. Yeah, you, you guys in the audience are probably already smarter than I am right now. Related to that, um, about a month and a half ago, the New Horizons team had a press release about finally discovering all the known moons in the system. Uh, but this is another case where sort of I, even as someone who's done a lot of uh, types of image processing with spacecraft data and a lot of analysis, I didn't see it in the raw data. And I was curious if you could go into a little bit more detail as to what are the techniques that you use to pull out these really, really faint signals? Because as you said, uh, just before we detect it, they are below the threshold of detectability. And just when you detect it, they are right at that threshold. And so I'm curious as to if you could go into talking a little bit more about some of the techniques that you use there. Sure. For one thing, we're using the full fidelity data, the raw image website uh, that is part of the New Horizons website where all the raw images are posted. Those are 8-bit images, meaning there are 256 gray levels in those images. Uh, the full images that we're dealing with have uh, 4,000 gray levels in them. So we can see a lot finer distinctions of, uh, of levels of brightness than is possible in those raw images. And, and typically, the, these new satellites, when we first detect them, are just right down on those bottom couple of gray levels in the, uh, that would be in the JPEGs that are, are posted. And, and also the JPEGs are compressed, um, and so they just don't have all the detail in them. Um, so we're dealing with much higher fidelity data to begin, begin with. But then there's a lot of things that we, we do to the images to uh, pull out the objects. The first thing we do is we measure the locations of a number of stars in the images with by an automatic routine, and that tells us exactly where the camera was pointing. Um, so we might have uh, 24 images taken in a mosaic pattern with six images at each of four pointings. Um, and with that information, by using the stars in the images, we can line those all up perfectly to much better than pixel. 
we've been watching uh, Pluto get brighter. We've got a pretty good understanding now of just how much scattered light we get from Pluto, what ghosts are produced in the camera system by Pluto. Um, and so we can have a prediction of just how much light there should be from Pluto itself, and we can subtract that out. We also have a star catalogue of where all the stars in, are in the image and how bright they are, and we can subtract that out so we can get rid of most of the stars, not perfectly, but pretty well. Um, we measure the blurring in each image, and we take that into account when we're subtracting the stars so we can do an even better job of subtracting them. And then we just add all those images together, um, and then we compare them to images that we took months ago when we went much further away from Pluto, and any of new moons would be invisible, and we subtract the image taken from longer ago. And so what we're left with is something where we've subtracted out the stars, we've subtracted out Pluto as best we can, though we can't do it perfectly, um, and we've added all these images together to make the noise level as low as possible, and that's when we can start to pull out these faint objects. And then we'll do this six times with six different images taken over the course of a day or two, maybe, and taken uh, with the spacecraft in two different orientations. And we just look for things that are consistent from one image to the next, and that are moving in the expected way that a, a moon would move. So we have to go through all those steps before we can start to get down to picking up these very faint moons. So yeah, it's you, there's a lot of that you just can't do with the, the images posted on the Royal website. So that's still quite an impressive number of steps uh, that you go through. <laughs> and uh, hopefully the listeners learn something there. I, I actually had no idea that it was so much stuff. I mean, I assumed it was a lot of work and that you're going to do as careful a job as possible because, as you said, this is the health uh, of the spacecraft that's at risk when looking for these kinds of things. But that's that's an impressive amount of processing. Yeah. And uh, just so the listeners know, that's what we mean when you know real astronomers say that we have processed an image. Mm-hmm. But with that in mind, when I actually first contacted you about doing this interview, you had mentioned that there were certain ethics in image processing. And a lot of people in the audience, as we said, are used to various conspiracy theorists claiming that, for example, NASA is hiding things or airbrushing out aliens or things like that. But since I've addressed uh, those issues in many, many past episodes, I was curious about what you meant specifically in this case by ethics. I think different people have different uh, attitudes to this. Um, I think one thing is that unless you make it very clear that you've done it, you don't want to do special processing to one part of the image that you don't do to other piece, parts of the image. For instance, we've we've released these movies of the small moons orbiting around Pluto, and you can see the moons moving, um, but you see a lot of other stuff in there as well, um, a lot of which isn't real, and it's kind of tempting to go in with an airbrush and just sort of smooth over all those things and just leave the thing that you know is real and cover up all the stuff that isn't real, and you, maybe you get fewer questions that way. Um, but that's not something I would do, um, because it's it's altering the image in a way that's putting yourself into the image contents. Um, I'm, I'm using my own mind to alter the image, and therefore I may inadvertently be adding something that I wish was there, or... Um, or removing something that uh, that might be real that I I don't believe, so I just uh, 
would cover it up. And I don't want to do that. I want people to see the images the way we deal with them, where you have to take everything at face value. You have to decide for yourself through these various checks as to what is real or not. And, you know, we'll remove cosmic rays, but we'll do it in an automatic way that doesn't require uh, me to go in and remove, make a judgment myself as to whether something is real. I let the computer do that in an unbiased way. So that's the kind of thing that I mean by the ethics of the processing. And it's, it's a fuzzy line because there are some artifacts that are actually more easily removed manually uh, than automatically. And sometimes you do have to step in and make some tweaks to, uh, to remove something that's really obviously not real. Um, but I will only do that on the really obvious things. And I always have to figure out for myself, where am I drawing that line? So I'm not inadvertently biasing what appears in the final image. I really like that philosophy. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I work with you, but um, this actually came up a few years ago with a Cassini image set where the team released some image of some moon. I don't remember exactly what it was, but someone had taken the paintbrush tool in Photoshop and gone over the night side of the moon because it wasn't quite as dark as the sky or maybe it had to do with uh, three color filters and the craft had moved a little bit during that time but someone took that image put it into photoshop bumped up the levels and saw this effectively the paintbrush tool going over (laughs) it and it became this huge thing on conspiracy websites and to be honest i to be fair i i i sort of remember that story and what i remember is that Often when that has been done, maybe in this case, um, it wasn't actually done by the team itself. It was done by one of the very talented amateur processors out there who will take the data from the raw sites and will produce these gorgeous images and um, will sometimes do a little bit more of that additional processing to clean up the image and make it look as cosmetically nice as possible, uh, which if you're producing an artistic product is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, And yeah, you can be doing things down and the very low gray levels of the image that you just don't, you think it doesn't matter because they're invisible in the image until somebody does that kind of stretch and then they see what you've, what you've done. So yeah, um, there are, there are times when that happens and it's for perfectly innocent reasons, but um, I can see why some people would think we were were trying to hide something. Plenty of people out there who will do that, who will bump up the levels of the image and, claim that whatever they see is is something. I mean, uh, Richard Hoagland is a big one who does that. He did that with the Shangji 3 images of the moon and claimed that these are glass structures that are iridescently glowing and mm-hmm. very, you know, yeah. even stuff that wasn't painted right. over by the team. It was just actually jo- uh, noisy, colored, JPEG artifact. Right. Yeah, um, and so sometimes, yeah, you're tempted to to manually paint out some of these things that you know are artifacts. Uh, because you don't want to set off people who will uh, pounce on them as being something real. And if you just sort of remove them from the image, the issue doesn't come, come up. But in doing that, it, may, it can look like you're actually trying to hide something real. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's tricky. All right. So with that all said, I want to thank you profusely for spending uh, roughly 35 minutes with us. But before I let you go, is there anything else sort of related to this discussion that uh, you think the audience should know based on your work, based on the New Horizons mission, or, or anything like that? 
Well, there's actually something interesting that we're working on right now, which is um, we're going to be taking color images of the Pluto system, as you, as you know, we already have, and some have already been released, though they don't show any detail yet. It's just we see the, the blobs representing Pluto and, and Sharon. And so we're putting quite a bit of effort into figuring out, well, what color is Pluto really? Um, and so this is, gets into another interesting area of what you, what you present to the public, what is a true image, uh, what is a true color image. Um, and our color camera is, does not have the same sensitivities as the human eye to different colors. We have a red filter and a blue filter, but we don't have a green filter, whereas the human eye essentially sees red, green, and blue separately. So to make a color image, image that looks something like you would see a Pluto, you have to um, interpolate between the red and the blue to produce a green image. And so we have to figure out the smartest way to do that and come up with colors that are plausibly the same as what the color of Pluto is. But we won't really know that every particular patch is the exact color that it will appear in the images we produce, or it would be that exact color as seen by the human eye, because we have to do a little uh, fudging to, to generate the green channel that would lie between the red and the blue, um, just in order to make an image that can look real. So we will do our very best to produce images that are the way Pluto will look, as you would see with the naked eye, but it's not going to be exact. And uh, we'll, we'll hope that people will understand that and will bear with us as we, we do the best we can on that. Yeah, I hope we're not going to get into the same issue with the, uh, the true color of Mars, um, <laughs> that whole thing with Viking. Yeah, uh, well, well, we'll see. Right. Hopefully it won't be an issue. Um, I'm actually working on uh, an animation to show this. Uh, it might be uh, put out by the team. It might not. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, true color is a very difficult thing to approximate, even if you have the right filters uh, that approximate the cones in the human eye. Because mm -hmm. even then, uh, you still have different sensitivities and all these, all right. these various right. things. And it depends on the monitor you're using, its capabilities, and... Uh, whether you're, what your eyes used to, is it looking in daylight or is it looking in a, a darkened room or all those things will affect the colors that your eye, eye perceives and they will do it in a different way than they would if you were looking at Pluto itself. So um, it's, that's always got some art in it as well as science, but we do the best we can to make it as realistic as we can. And actually on the team, there is going to be one person who all the color images go through to make sure that they're done in a consistent way as if we're trying to approximate true color. So this is one of the ways that we're trying to sort of uh, uniformify, if that, <laughs> if that can be a word, uh, the, the, yes. the, what we're actually putting out in order to try to, I mean, not, you know, respond to the crazies or do anything like that, but in order to try to present sort of a unified, this is probably close to what your human eye would see and do that consistently as opposed to if I were to process it one way and you were to process it another way and then Mark Bowie, who's actually going to be the one in charge of the color stuff, does it a different way. We want to do it in a uniform manner and so that's why uh, this has been set up for I guess the last uh, two months or so mm -hmm. as this goes out that it's going to be going through one person to make sure that we do things consistently. Right. And probably we all put out images that have wild and crazy colors because we'll be using some of the other wavelength information uh, that New Horizons will be gathering. For instance, we'll be gathering 
Uh, we have an infrared detector that gathers light uh, uh, longer wavelengths, which are very diagnostic of the composition of the frosts on the surface. And um, if our eyes could see those wavelengths, we'd be seeing some very bright and interesting colors on Pluto. So we will have some images that won't be at all realistic color, but will tell us important things about Pluto itself. And then we'll have some that may be in between and will be sort of realistic color, but we'll have a little more information added to bring out subtle variations that the human eye probably would not see, but which are real and which become apparent to your eye if you look at them with this special processing. But we'll try and make that clear in the captions that we've done that kind of thing. So it's hopefully people will be able to see this is our best, best shot at what the real color is. And this is just an approximation with some more information added. Or, or this is totally crazy infrared colors that are nothing like what you would see with your own eyes. And even with the captions, we're having sort of a uniform caption writing crew. So <laughs> hopefully, um, hopefully these things will, uh, will make sense to people. And uh, hopefully as people are listening to this, we'll have uh, done our job and things will be making sense. Mm -hmm. So with that said, um, thank you for coming on. Uh, hopefully people are paying attention to the New Horizons mission because as this goes out, we are 14 days away from closest approach, meaning that hopefully we're starting to see uh, interesting surface features and I'm starting to circle craters and uh, we'll all be having a, a fun time staring at the latest data at Mission Central in Maryland. Um, you bet we'll be having fun. and We're already having fun, even with the images now, which are still very fuzzy, but we're, we're straining. Every image, is going to is, every image we're taking now is showing a little bit more detail than the previous one, and so we're really straining to pull out all those details, and we're having a lot of fun doing that, even though we know that things that we're not sure whether we believe in them or not now will be really obviously real or not in a, in a week or so. We just can't wait to see these things as soon as we can on our approach. It's very exciting. Oh, yes. No, and I, I've never been involved with a mission before, so to me, this is all new and really, really cool. <laughs> uh, so, uh, thank you, John. And, um, well, as I put this out, I'll probably be seeing you in an hour or two. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, talk to you later. Thanks for the great questions. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Dr. John Spencer for coming on to talk about imaging with New Horizons. This interview came about because a few of you had suggested that I discuss New Horizons in some way on the podcast because I'm involved in the mission, although this podcast is legally com and completely separate from my work uh, on New Horizons. Um, it was also hard for me to discuss the mission for two reasons. First, because NASA and the PI are fairly tight in what exactly is released when. And second, it's hard to get an exposing pseudo-astronomy angle on New Horizons. But I think I found the angle, and we got the interview approved, and John and I were able to find time to conduct it. And also, I should note that as I wrote this, uh, John sent me a correction and said that he was not involved in the Voyager program until the 1980s, that he's not quite old enough to have been involved in the 70s. That said, I'll say it for the third time, that this was recorded a month before it's being released. It is entirely possible that at this point we found more moons or rings or something else of interest. It's also possible that we haven't, and when I say of interest, I mean specifically with respect to deep, deep, very, very faint 
imaging of objects. Any such discovery has taken place as a result of John Spencer and his team's insane amount of work to pull these faint signals out of the data, but for real, and not by pressing the equalize button in Photoshop, or not by one person squinting their eye and calling it an object that's real. With all of that in mind, a lot more on the basics of image processing can be found in the archives in episodes 47 and 48, also embedded in the discussion in episodes 65, 70, 73, and 99, and also the discussion about the true color of Mars is from episode 74. That wraps up this topic for the 135th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or email me directly at podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and two random people that you'll never meet in real life. Also, have a Pluto party.